We will come to the time in our service now. We're going to look at a passage from God's Word. We'll talk about what it means, why it matters, and what we should do about it. So if you have a Bible with you, would you turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7? 1 Corinthians chapter 7, if you're using this Brown Pew Bible, it's on page 809. Big black numbers are the chapter numbers. The small little guys are the verse numbers. We're going to start at verse 7. Read a few verses, and then we're going to hop over the page to verse 26, but starting at verse 7. And when you found that, would you stand together with me, and I'll read this passage for us. Paul says this, I wish that all men were as I am, but each man has his own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. Now to the unmarried and the widows, I say it is good for them to stay unmarried as I am. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Flip over now to verse 26. He says, because of this present crisis, I think that it is good for you to remain as you are. Are you married? Do not seek a divorce. Are you unmarried? Do not look for a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life, and I want to spare you this. What I mean, brothers, is that the time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they had none. Those who mourn as if they did not. Those who are happy as if they were not. Those who buy something as if it were not theirs to keep. Those who use things of the world as though uh, it were not engrossed in them. For this world is, in its present form is passing away. I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife. And his interests are divided. An unmarried woman or a virgin uh, is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord, both body and spirit. But the married woman is concerned about the affairs of the world, how she can please her husband. I am saying this for your own good, not to restrict you but that you may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. This is God's word. You may be seated. Let me pray for us once more and just ask God's blessing now on this time and his word to impact it on our hearts the way he wants to. Spirit of God, we just ask you to come now and uh, open our eyes, open our minds, open our hearts and our ears to you and what you want to say to us specifically this morning. Through your word, I believe uh, you have drawn each person here today, particularly for a specific purpose. I don't know what that is, but I believe it's a good purpose. And I trust, Father, as you say in your word, when you send out your word, it doesn't return to you void. It does accomplish the purpose for which you send it. Oh, God, would you accomplish that purpose in each one of us today? And as I always ask, eternal God, would you move and govern my tongue now to speak your truth? Amen. Well, sitting through romantic comedies and pretending to enjoy them, when all the while you're longing for like a battle scene, some kind of an epic car chase through narrow European streets, or maybe just to check the sports highlights all the time, that's just an understood part of what it means to be in a dating relationship for a man in our North American cultural context anywhere. Um, That's just something we do. Um, I, I will be the first to admit, however, yes, there are some rom-coms that I've been surprised, I've been surprised by. I've been like, wow, that's actually pretty entertaining, pretty well written. 
But even given all that, I had to admit, even I myself was impressed by that opening scene from Bridget Jones' Diary, which maybe you've seen years ago. This epic, iconic air band performed by Renee Zellweger in her flannel pajamas as she rocks out to the classic 70s rock ballad, All by myself, don't want to live. You, you know this classic 70s rock ballad, All by Myself, which is kind of just bemoaning that the days of young, carefree love, which are now unreachable from the present lonely existence. I thought she killed it. Um, and yet, what's important not to lose sight of even as we're being entertained by what we're watching, is to remember the fact that everything from that opening scene to everything else you see in the film is depicting, that, that we see depicted in the rest of this 2001 film, which apparently is a, a loosely based on Jane Austen's novel Pride and Prejudice. It's depicting a reality for many, many people in the world. That's what many people experience Every day, it's this experience uh, that men and women around the world, millions uh, who, who might long for marriage, who might long for relational closeness, but have been able, unable to, to find it. It doesn't mean all single people are seeking marriage, but it's, it's an experience that many people identify with who are single, which, of course, is undoubtedly why the film did so well. It went on to gross over $280 million worldwide, spawned two sequels. I think namely because as people watched that, they just resonated with what they were seeing. They were like, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, I get that. Being there. Now, as you may already know, historically speaking, in much, uh, through many ancient societies, they, they prized marriage and family as some of the highest ideals possible. Uh, as Tim Keller notes in his book, The Meaning of Marriage, nearly all ancient religions and cultures made an absolute value of the family and of bearing children. There was no honor without family honor. There was no real lasting significance or legacy without leaving heirs. Without children, you essentially vanished. You had no future. The main hope for the future then was to have children. But even given the diminishing significance and attitudes towards marriage in our modern society that we talked about last week, I think most of you would still acknowledge that the cultural pressure to, to settle down and get married that is uh, placed on singles and single women in particular, along with the supposed strangeness of remaining single later into life, is still very much a painful reality faced today by people who might long for marriage, but for any number of reasons have been unable to find a marriage partner. Add to that then what we looked at last week from our passage in Genesis 2, where God literally says, as a part of his creative design, it's not good for a man to be alone. And then immediately following that, he creates the first woman, and we have their very first marriage ceremony. I mean, all of that together, what does that communicate to a single person? How do they hear all that? I mean, is marriage, is that really the ideal? This is the top shelf. This is what God really wants for all of us. And, and singleness, uh, you know what, that's kind of... It's okay, that's kind of God's plan B, that some people have to endure. Is that what we are meant to understand? Well, we began this teaching series two weeks ago now, entitled Procurum, a Latin word meaning to be curved outwards. And what we've been looking at together in this series is both the problem, which brings about all the relational brokenness that we experience in our world today, namely, the inward curved, the selfish nature of all of our hearts since the entrance of sin into the world. 
But we've also been looking at how God uses all kinds of different things in order to help reshape that curve back outwards once again instead of being inward focused and instead of being self-focused. He wants to curve that, that, that bent inwards back outwards towards others as well as towards himself. Last week, we looked at how God uses marriage to help reshape that inward-facing curve. Today, we're going to look at how God uses singleness in order to help accomplish the very same thing, which maybe is a surprising thing for you to hear me say, but I'm hoping by the end of our time together this morning, you're going to see both the truth of that from God's Word as well as the goodness of that. The goodness of God's design in that through his word. That you will see the goodness of God's design for someone's experience who remains unmarried. Which given what everything I just said about the cultural attitudes towards marriage is probably as countercultural a statement today as it was in Paul's day when he first wrote that. That God's design for singleness is just as good as his design for marriage in order to reshape the inward-facing curve of our hearts. I want you to see that, and and I think this is something that's absolutely found here in God's Word in this passage we're going to look at today, and it's something so important for us to look at together, not solely because we have brothers and sisters that are part of our church family that are single, but because even as married people, I think we all need to recognize we're actually missing out on something of the fullness. We're missing out on something of the very goodness of God's design when He created men and women in His image and likeness. If we see marriage alone as the the sole relationship that reflects God's image, that's that's for his full design and and singleness as being some kind of lower, suboptimal reality. So in order to help all of us see that, and I pray really grab hold of that and and live it out, I want to look at our passage together in just two ways. I want to show you the goodness of God's design in singleness, and then... God's curve reshaping design in singleness. The goodness of God's design in singleness, God's curve reshaping design in singleness. So if you've closed your Bibles, would you open them again to that passage, 1 Corinthians 7. Follow along with me as we look at singleness and undivided devotion. Okay, let's look first of all at the goodness of God's design in singleness. It's going to be read out for us. The goodness of God's design in singleness. Now, I realize full well that for a lot of you in here today, even using the words goodness and singleness in the same sentence is like, uh, no, that's what? Those things don't go together. No. Uh, uh, And further, to hear Paul describe singleness, a celibate life in verse 7 there as a gift in, in any sense of the word makes you think that Paul might be having some kind of a Greek dictionary problem, and that someone like Inigo Montoya from The Princess Bride might respond by saying, you keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. Gift? Are you kidding me? But in saying that, you have to acknowledge the reality at the same time that Paul also had other gifts in his life, uh, preaching and teaching. He was able to discern between spirits. People got healed by touching his hanky. All things that we would describe as, oh yeah, those are gifts. So he's got something to compare it to. And you'd have to acknowledge the fact that virtually all of the biblical teaching we have on spiritual gifts comes from Paul. So I guess we could say Paul was wrong. He's just wrong about this one. Or 
what we could acknowledge is the more likely conclusion that we are, and that Paul simply knew something about gifts from God that we just have yet to understand. Beyond this, as Tim Keller notes, Paul always uses the word gift to mean an ability God gives to build others up. Whenever Paul talks about a gift, he always uses it as something God gives us to build up others, which means when God gives us any kind of gift, it's not something that's solely for us. It's something intended to serve others. And I think that's how Paul is using that word here as well. Gift of singleness is something we use to serve others with, actually. And then even understanding that, Paul also recognizes not everyone's going to have the same gift, which is why after saying, I wish all men were as I am, everyone had the same gift as me, he goes on in the second half of verse 7 to say, but each man has his own gift from God. One has this gift and one has the other. But even if all that is not enough to convince you that singleness could be a gift from God, we also have to consider that the author and perfecter of our faith, Jesus Christ himself, also never married, never had sex once in his 30-something years of life, and he was the most perfect, the most fully human person ever to walk this earth, which makes it virtually impossible to argue that marriage is this superior, uh, more fully human experience in some ways to singleness, or for the need to marry, the need to have sex in order to be a fully human person. It just doesn't work. We can't, you can't make that argument. If, if Jesus is the most fully human person that lived and he didn't experience those things, then we can't make that same argument anymore. It just completely nullifies it. But as it relates to this idea of the goodness of God's design and singleness, where you see Paul state that explicitly is back in verse 35. Look there with me. Here in conclusion to everything that he's written to the church about the gift of singleness, he writes, I'm saying this for your own good, not to restrict you. I'm saying this for your own good. This is something good. He even says earlier, if you saw there in the second half of verse 28, verse 32, he says, I'm telling you all this stuff to spare you trouble, to spare you concern, which means what? Well, beyond the fact that it means, obviously, Paul really believes what he's saying is good. It's not that he just had a bad week with his wife and he's just like, you know what, maybe singleness is better. Maybe that would be better, actually. No, it means what, what he's saying is that uh, as he's writing this, he knows that the people he's writing to aren't going to be convinced that what he's saying is good either. He needs to convince them, this is actually a good thing that I'm, I'm telling you. This is primarily because, as I said earlier, Paul is writing to people in a culture, in a historical period in time where being married, having children, was some of the only means for survival. Some of the only means to, for stability in life. You, you needed to be married and, and have children who could carry on and take care of you later. That's just what you needed to make it. As social historian Rodney Stark notes, pagan widows, I, th those who were outside of the church community, faced great social pressure to remarry. Caesar Augustus even had widows fined if they failed to remarry within two years. And yet what was so radically different about what Paul is writing here and actually revolutionary about Christianity in general was, as Stanley Hauerbos notes, Christianity was the very first religion that held up single adulthood as a viable way of life. Did you know that? Christianity was the very first religion to hold up being single and living out that. That's an equally viable way to live out your life to someone who's married and has a family. Rodney Stark adds to this, again, in contrast among Christians, widowhood, 
was highly respected, and remarriage was, if anything, mildly discouraged. The church stood ready to sustain poor widows, allowing them the choice as to whether or not to remarry. Which altogether means what? Well, as Keller summarizes so well, the Christian gospel and hope of the future kingdom de-idolized marriage. There was no more radical act in that day and time than to live a life that did not produce heirs. Christians who remained single then were making a statement. Our future is not guaranteed by the family, but by God. God would guarantee their future, first by giving them their truest family, the church, so they never lacked for brothers or sisters, fathers and mothers in Christ. But ultimately, Christians' inheritance is nothing less than the fullness of the kingdom of God in the new heaven and the new earth. Which means with all that in view, I think we've actually done a great disservice to single people over the years, particularly in the church where we've been shown a different way to view singleness because of passages like this in particular. Where we've approached those who've embraced their singleness as a gift from God, even if that's only a gift that they have right now for this season of life, and made them to feel either accidentally or on purpose like their obedience to God's call on their life is somehow less. It's a lower calling than if they were to pursue marriage. I think we've done a great disservice in, in making single people if they felt that pressure at all from us, particularly in the church. A woman, Paige Benton Brown, who wrote an article called Singled Out by God for Good, lists a number of the ways that she heard people trying to explain her singleness to her in the church over the years, saying to her things like, as soon as you're satisfied with God alone, he'll bring someone special into your life. As though God's blessings were ever earned by our contentment. You're just too picky. As though God is frustrated by our fickle whims and needs broader parameters in which to work. Before you can marry someone wonderful, the Lord has to make you someone wonderful. As though God grants marriage as a second blessing to the satisfactorily sanctified. Some of you have heard these <laughs> sentences before. She concludes, and I love this, I'm not single because I'm too spiritually unstable to possibly deserve a husband, nor because I'm too spiritually mature to possibly need one. I am single because God is so abundantly good to me. Because this is his best for me. Now, you'll notice Paul doesn't disparage marriage. He doesn't disparage that relationship in order to try to bolster up and prioritize singleness. Singleness is the superior calling. He's not trying to tip the teeter-totter the other way and say, no, no, singleness, that's better. All through our passage, he's careful to hold out the goodness of both, that they are both good gifts given to us by God. He's saying these are equally good things. But my question for us this morning as we think about what we just looked at is whether or not you do that in your own life. Do you do that? Do you see them as equally good gifts? Do we as a church do this well enough yet, collectively? Or maybe do we say that we hold these things equally in our theology, but in our practice, actually, we continue to lift up marriage as this higher calling and just quietly judge, quietly question, why would that person not want to get married? What's wrong with them? God's word, as well as the living word, Jesus Christ, revealed to us the beauty of marriage, as well as the beauty of singleness, as unique gifts. Yes, they both bring their own unique struggles, 
unique gifts, but that are in no way inferior to one another. May we as a church, first of all, believe that that's true, but then may we also live out that belief. May we encourage one another in the goodness of whatever gifting God has given others at this present season of their life. I think, I think that practice alone would help curve us more outward towards one another. Okay, so that's the goodness of God's design in singleness. I, I hope you've caught at least something of Paul's intent and have come to see maybe he's not totally off his rocker in presenting singleness and celibacy as any kind of gift. And I need you to see at least something of the goodness of that because if you don't see singleness as an equally desirable gift that God could give to someone, it could cause you to miss out or you to lead someone else to miss out on the fullness of all that God has for them in that season of their life because they're too busy pursuing something other than God's best for them. And whether he's given you that gift of singleness right now or not, I need you to have at least some sense of the goodness of God's design in it, or also you'll never come to understand God's curve-reshaping design in singleness. God's curve-reshaping design in singleness. Look back with me at what the Apostle Paul says in verse 26 of chapter 7 here. He writes this, Because of the present crisis... I think that it is good for you to remain as you are. Are you married? Do not seek a divorce. Are you unmarried? Do not look for a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life. And I want to spare you this. Now, there's a number of different opinions as far as theologians of what they, they say that this present crisis is that Paul's referring to there. I want you to just take a post-it note and set that up here for a second. And, and notice at least that Paul's saying, whatever the crisis is, his instruction, their, their response to it, should be that they should just stay put. Their response to the crisis should be just stay as you are. Okay, take down the post-it note now. Okay, so coming back to identifying the crisis. I follow the interpretation that sees what Paul goes on to write in verse 29 and following as his explanation of what he means by the present crisis. So look with me there now. Verse 29, he literally says, What I mean, brothers, is that the time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they have none. Those who mourn as if they did not. Those who are happy as if they were not. Those who buy something as if it was not theirs to keep. Those who use the things of the world as if not engrossed in them. For this world, in its present form, is passing away. Now, some believe here that what Paul is saying is that he, he, because he believes Jesus is, is returning any day now, and because that's true, there's no point in getting married. There's no point in getting remarried or whatever it is. We should just stay as we are because this present world as it is, is going to just, it's passing away at any moment now. So, so don't bother. The problem with that is while Paul certainly believes Jesus is coming back, he, he does believe that, there's nowhere else in his teaching where Paul it prescribes this kind of just sell the house and the farm and the car and everybody just wait out on the front lawn for Jesus to come and get us. He, he never presents that kind of theology. In fact, his letter to the Thessalonians is, is teaching against that very idea, this kind of over-realized eschatology. So what does he mean then? Well, if you look again at that whole progression of examples that Paul gives in these verses, in light of what he says about the time being short, Literally, the time is shortened, as well as the fact that he presents this, that this present form of the world is passing away. What he seems to be saying here 
It's that given that we are united, now that we're united to Christ, our bridegroom, by faith, and his return one day will transform all these present realities, uh, uh, revealing them as nothing more than shadows that point ahead to a greater and deeper reality, we should be viewing, we should be seeing, we should be estimating these things very differently than the world does right now. We should be seeing them all very differently than the world does right now because of our transformed relationship with Christ, our bridegroom. So no, Paul is not saying to husbands, stop acknowledging that you have wives anymore. Like you would just be like, sorry, baby, I follow Jesus now. Yeah, you can stay in the house, but I'm not acknowledging you're my wife anymore. That's not what he's saying. And if you read the progressive examples, you can see, yeah, there must be something else going on. What he's saying is that now that you're united to Jesus and in light of the fact that his return will transform all these realities, we should no longer view marriage. We should no longer view mourning or happiness or possessions the same way that we did before we were united to Jesus. It should transform the whole way we see these things. That's, I think, exactly why Paul goes on to say in the remaining verses, sure, go ahead, get married if that's, if that's where you're at. Uh, you're not sinning if you do so, but do it remembering that marriage is not an ultimate thing. Marriage is a shadow pointing ahead to something greater. We need to view marriage differently. We need to de-idolize marriage in our own lives in light of our new gospel-formed reality. And also acknowledge this practically speaking. In the short term, yes, as he said, pursuing marriage is going to limit some of your abilities to build up the, the kingdom work that God has called you to that a single person does have. He's saying there, there are different responsibilities on a married person, a person with a family that a single person doesn't have. There are different opportunities to serve, and this one brings some of its own struggles. And it says, I want to save you from that if I can. So ultimately, as we've seen already, Paul's intent, he said very clearly, I'm not trying to re restrict you. If you feel that you, you, there's someone to marry, marry them. What he's trying to do is to free us to an undivided devotion. Free us to an undivided devotion in serving God, whatever gift he's given you whether that's the gift of singleness or the gift of marriage. Because do you see it now? This, this is where what we talked about last week ties in so perfectly here. I'll say it again in case you weren't here. Because if earthly marriage relationship is only a shadow pointing to a greater and deeper reality that God desires to experience with us through a relationship with Jesus, and I can experience the fullness of that, relationship, that relational intimacy with Jesus whether I'm married in this life or not, well, then, that frees me to surrender myself to the curve, reshaping gift in my life, regardless of whether that gift is being married or whether that gift is being single. It means, as a single person, I can remain as I am, if that's the gift God's given to me right now, I can remain as I am, being content in the reshaping, word, the reshaping work that God wants to do in my life, trusting that the tool of singleness will be just as effective to do that as the tool of a spouse in the life of of someone that God's given the gift of marriage to. Both tools are just as equally good at reshaping the curve. I can trust that I can remain as I am right now. I don't need this in order to be reshaped. I can be reshaped in this single relationship because of my union with Christ. That's why I think for Paul, the point at the end wasn't whether someone was single or whether someone was married. The point for him, as he writes in verse 35, was that we would live in a right way. 
in undivided devotion to the Lord, regardless of which gifting you have. Now, yes, yet there's no question, as I just said, a single person might have certain freedoms, freedoms from obligations that a married person or someone with children would have, yes. Uh, uh, as one single missionary woman wrote, she said, being single has meant that I am free to take risks that I might not take if I were the mother of a family dependent on me. It's given me freedom to move around the world without having to pack up a household first. And this freedom has brought, me, brought to me moments that I would not trade for anything else this side of eternity. But again, we need to remember, Paul is not trying to pit marriage and singleness against each other in some kind of little battle here. He's, he, he's, it's just because a single person doesn't have a spouse or children that can divide their devotion doesn't mean for a second that single people don't have other loyalties that can divide their devotions. We, we all have things that can cause us to be divided in our loyalties to God, whether we're single or not. So what is Paul getting at? Well, on the one hand, I think Paul is simply laying out the benefits of singleness here as it relates to his own experience in ministry and ultimately by doing so, legitimizing single adult ministry, showing it to have equally as much value as a married one in this culture that had idolized marriage, that had idolized family to a large degree. Service to God as a, as a single brother, as a single sister, has just as much value in the church as service of a married couple or of a family. Just as much value. I think that's a message we absolutely still need to hear today. Both are equally valuable to the life of the church. But on the other hand, I think what Paul is teaching us here is that the way you live with undivided devotion to God is not by being single or married. It's by living like the time is short. I think that's his whole point, actually. By living like the time is short, a message also desperately needed by us today. If you look at the life and ministry of Jesus as he was on the earth, yeah, you see a kindness, a graciousness, a patience about him as he walked and lived life as a single person, but you also see a, a passion and an urgency about his ministry as he set about carrying out the mission to redeem a fallen world with undivided devotion to his father that led him all the way to death on a Roman cross. He, he was always at that work with undivided devotion to his father. Jesus knew he had about three years to accomplish all that he'd come to do, which is not a great deal of time. But I think what Paul's point is here is that you don't even know if you have that. You don't even know if you've got three weeks to accomplish all the kingdom-building work that God has called you to do. So whether you're gifted with marriage or whether you're gifted with singleness, stop living your life like you've got all the time in the world. You don't. Why? Because the time is short. How short? You don't know. And I think Paul's point is, because you don't know, live your life in a right way now. Live with undivided devotion to God today. Finally, in closing, uh, I think we just we got to take a moment to consider the question that is undoubtedly coming up in our minds as we look at all Paul has to say here about singleness. Namely, asking the question, how do I know if I have this gift? How do I know if I have the gift of singleness or the gift of celibacy, which if I can just take a small 
excursus here for a moment. Biblically speaking, if you have the gift of singleness, you have the gift of celibacy. Uh, there is no category in God's word for a sexual relationship outside of a committed covenant relationship between a man and a woman in marriage. There, there is no place. So if you have the gift of singleness, biblically speaking, you have the gift of celibacy. How do I know if I have this gift? Or maybe put another way, now this is a question I would often ask uh, in my single days, if I'm single right now but I don't want to be, does that mean I don't have the gift? Or does it mean God is giving me the gift and I'm just like, no, no, no thanks, I want that one. Uh, all of which are great questions, really great questions. And I think a prayerful investigation of your own heart, as well as honest conversation within a community of, of trusted, godly friends and family will likely be your best avenue in answering those questions. People that really know you, because I, I don't know your situation, as well as those people in your life who really know you. So be having those conversations with people you know and trust. They're, they're going to help guide you in that. But I, I want to offer you just a few thoughts of my own, just take or leave. Um, if you remember what we looked at this morning, Paul said he's written all of this, verse 35, for our own good. I'm saying this for your good, not to restrict you. Uh, the, the term in Greek is actually not to put a noose around you. It's, not a, it's, a, it's a hunting term. I'm not trying to trap you here. I, 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 wanna, I want you to follow whatever gifting God's given to you. But he says, I'm saying this that you may live in the right way with undivided devotion to the Lord, which means the very first question you need to discern is, what is the direction of your heart's devotion? What is, the, what is the highest place of devotion in your life? Is it really God? Is this relationship with Jesus really the priority in my life and everything takes a, a, a lower thing to that? Or do, does Jesus have to compete with my desires? What is the, the direction of your heart's devotion? Because on the one hand, if you see your singleness as a means to serve a broader base of people right now, and though you're open to a relationship, you're content where you are, you're just, that, that's enough for you right now, then that's a good indication, very likely, that you have this gift. Now, it may be taken away at some point, but I think right now anyways, you could confidently say, it's very likely I have this gift. But if you are single and the constant desire of your heart is for marriage, I think the challenge there is to discern what the motivation of behind that desire is. What's the core motivation of that desire? If you're desiring marriage because God has brought a specific person into your life who shares your faith and your values and, and whom you desire to be married and godly counsel agrees, it's likely you don't have this gift of singleness. Or maybe it's been taken away. But if there is no specific prospect in your life right now, but finding someone to marry is all you can focus on. Every aspect of your life is, is, is there a husband here? Do you want to be my wife? If that is the constant focus of you, there's no prospect, but you're just like, all I can think about is finding someone to be married to. The reality could be that God has given you this gift of singleness, but you've just simply selected a different gift for yourself because you see your single life right now is somehow inadequate. It's not enough. It's not complete if I don't have this piece added to it. You can continue to press forward in that, and I can tell you very honestly, in my own past, that was, I think, very much my own pursuit. Uh, you can continue down that path, 
but I would just want to gently remind you there's all kinds of stories in the Bible, Jonah being just one of them, uh, of the kind of consequences that come to us when we pursue a path other than God's intended path for us. It's one thing to be open to marriage. It's a very different thing to have marriage be the sole driving force of my life. I need to find a spouse. That's why I say ultimately the question that needs to be discerned is the direction of your heart's devotion because married or not, I need you to hear me say, only Jesus, only Jesus can ever satisfy the deepest desires and longings of our hearts. And all the married people in here this morning said, amen. I love my wife. I love the family that's grown out of that love, but yet my wife, my kids do not complete me. They do not fill the deepest longings of my heart. Only Jesus can do that. You were made for a relationship with him first. And there's no earthly relationship, however good, that could ever fill up the needs, the deepest needs of your heart that Jesus can do. That's the only relationship that can do that. I like the way Paige Brown says it, and I'll close with this. She writes, let's face it, singleness is not an inherently inferior state of affairs, but I want to be married. I pray to that end every day. I may meet someone and walk down the aisle in the next couple of years because God is so good to me. Or I may never have another date because God is so good to me. As Keller concludes in this quote that he gives in the book, that right there, there is exactly the right balance to have. Amen. Amen.